The following is a bonus episode of Locked On Presents Through the Uprights, a special podcast series about what it takes to make it as an elite college and NFL kicker. Reported by Cole Weinstein and featuring interviews with Lou Groza award winners and decade-plus NFL veterans. Locked On Presents Through the Uprights is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Most of a kicker's career is spent on the sideline. Like a slugger in baseball waiting for his at-bat, there's a lot of downtime between kicks, a lot of time to psych yourself out. And after all that, there's no guarantee you even get a chance to attempt a kick. If you let it, the sideline can be an endless purgatory of dark thoughts and doubt, especially after a bad miss that fills the stadium with booze. That's why 23-year NFL kicking veteran John Carney approached his time on the sideline with a singular consistent strategy. I call it sideline behavior, and there certainly is sideline behavior that varies from kicker to kicker, but it really is a focus on your next kick and not getting too emotionally involved in the game. That's the focus of this chapter, the sideline, where a kicker spends the majority of his career and the behavior he has to display in order to overcome all of that downtime. In a game as violent as football, where top athletes fight tooth and nail for mere inches in an attempt to make the other physically submit, how is it possible that winners and losers, championships and dynasties can be determined by a kicker? It doesn't add up, and yet it's an essential element to the game I love. I've spent the past few years fascinated by these athletes and tracking down some of the best to ever kick a football in search of what makes them succeed. Over 10 chapters, I'll do my best to explain the kicker position and what I believe it takes to make a champion. I'm Cole Weinstein, and this is Locked On Presents Through the Uprights, Chapter 7, Sideline Behavior. After retiring, John has spent over a decade as the head of Kearney Coaching. The 23-year NFL veteran now teaches the next generation of specialists the same strategy that he used during his time in the league. I actually tell my guys to divorce themselves emotionally from the game. may sound a little odd. It certainly did when I first heard it. Whether you're winning or losing or quarterback throwing touchdowns or interceptions has nothing to do with the way you're going to kick a punt of football. And so keeping yourself an emotional, even keel and having the ability to just focus on your mechanics and what you want to do with the football the next time you enter the field, that's going to produce the most success for you as a kicker. He's right. The outcome or potential outcome of a game has nothing to do with a kicker's ability to make a kick on a given play. And outside forces do impact a kicker. Usually, it's the negative pressure getting to his head. Chapter 1 of this series tackles that exact issue. Rather than kicking not to miss, a kicker is supposed to kick trying to make it. For Carney, that was done by divorcing himself from the game, effectively rendering all kicks the same no matter the moment. You stay kind of to yourself most of the game. You're over by the kicking net. You're sitting on the bench. You're warming up. You're stretching out. You're paying attention to the game, but not getting emotionally involved in the game. You're focusing on the mechanics of what you need to do when you enter the field for your performance. And that can be difficult in a game like football that's all about momentum. A big play, turnover, or huge hit can change the momentum in a stadium filled with tens of thousands of fans. Yet Carney is doing his best to keep an emotional distance. 
it, it's hard, but it's your job. And so you, uh, again, you understand what's expected of you. And so you got to be careful and guard yourself about getting emotionally dragged into the game. Yeah, so I'm probably going to lean towards what John is doing as well. Hall of Fame kicker, Morton Anderson. I had a very structured sideline routine. When we got to the 50-yard line, I would put my helmet on. I called it my hard hat, and I would get ready to go to work because I knew we were one first down away from three points probably. And for a kicker, a shot at three points is everything. Once the offense reached the 50-yard line, the routine began. I would be in the net, but I wouldn't be in the net kicking 20 balls. I'd be in the net maybe three to five balls just to swing my leg. And I would be isolated, but my eyes would be down the sideline to the coach. I knew exactly where the head coach was. I knew exactly what the special teams coach was. And we had an understanding that it wouldn't be them yelling at me. But the special teams coach would point and just look at me. It would be this look. And I, I knew enough about situational football that when we were going to kick a field goal. For a Hall of Famer like Anderson... Preparation and being on the same page is the name of the game. This is conversations I have during the week with my guys, my coaches. This is has already been agreed, agreed upon. This is not some, we're not winging this. This was not just, Morton's going to do this now. Morton's going to do that. It's pretty much etched in stone. This applies to every aspect of Anderson's game, including his sideline behavior. I enjoyed the game. I was a fan of the game. So when we didn't have the ball, I wouldn't sit a lot. I would pace up and down to stay loose. I was involved in the game. I was cheering the play. I was. I felt I was part of the team. But we, I wouldn't say I isolated myself, but I kind of went into my own little world when we got the ball, especially when we got to the 50-yard line. And people knew to leave me alone. You know, They knew not to come up and disturb me because I was in that place. That sideline routine where I may be taking the field and I may be putting points on the board. And that's where Morton Anderson's sideline behavior differed from John Carney's. Carney wanted to emotionally divorce himself from the game, create a state of mental equilibrium where every kick means the same. Anderson didn't do that. When the defense was on the field or the offense was starting a drive deep in their own territory, he was a teammate like everyone else. It was when the offense crossed the 50-yard line that he put his hard hat on and went to work. This was a popular type of sideline behavior amongst kickers I talked to, like 2006 Lou Groza Award winner Art Carmody. I was emotionally invested in the game as a competitor. You know, I want our team to win, and, and I'm a football fan in general. Like I love football. If I could have played quarterback, I would have played quarterback. I just wasn't good enough. I was five nine, 170 pounds, but I was never going to be a Division One quarterback. So during the game, I would I'd be social, except when the offense got the ball and they got near midfield, then I put the switch. And what was the action that signaled it was time to flip that switch? I would put my helmet on. As soon as I put my helmet on, it's go time, and I'm, I don't want anybody coming. I go into my zone. I go into my routine. I'm getting ready for my opportunity, and if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, I take off my helmet, and then I'm social again. There were two sides to that former Louisville kicker. The football fan, who enjoyed conversing with teammates while watching the sport he loved, and the athlete, ready to do his job when his number was called. Because when his team did get in range... I flipped the switch. I basically turned into a caged animal at that point. And that's what I find so interesting about sideline behavior. Successful kickers need to be in a successful headspace when the moment calls on them to make their kicks. Someone like John Carney creates a bubble around themselves to stay in that headspace the entire game. Someone like Art Carmody switches between the two all game. When called upon, he then turns into a caged animal. But otherwise... 
I was, for lack of a better word, more of a social butterfly. I let them know what was kind of going on and be supportive of offensive defense, depending on who was on the sideline at that time. That's NFL kicking veteran Eddie Murray, who played in the league for two decades. He brings up another interesting aspect of being a social player with a lot of downtime. You have the opportunity to be a positive teammate. The defense came off after a defensive stand or some kind of thing to congratulate guys, hey, good play, good breakup, you know, those kinds of things. Or if the offense was on the sideline, hey, you know, nice block, nice run, that's all those kinds of things. That's true for any player, but kickers certainly have a great understanding of the mindset needed to be a successful athlete. It may be small, but being a source of positivity for a teammate, whether they made a good or bad play, can be instrumental to team morale during games. It's a unique opportunity that all specialists have, not just kickers. For Nate Boyer, a former University of Texas long snapper in his 30s, he felt being a therapist was part of the job. Especially being an older guy on the team like me, I think that that's important. I know those guys looked up to me, and I had to make sure and, and be that positive voice, make sure everybody's ready to go, and organized and set and confident, and then especially in those pressure situations, you know, I gotta be, I gotta be keeping those guys alert and ready. Your play on the field isn't everything. How you lead also matters, and that can come in different forms. You can lead by example, like John Carney, who demonstrated the sacrifice and focus needed to last in the NFL for two decades. You can be a positive voice, like Eddie Murray or Mark Primanti. Or you can take the lead, like Nate Boyer, who used his age and military leadership skills to be a voice of reason for college undergrads, many of whom were still maturing. Every leader is a little bit different, and so is every kicker's sideline behavior. It's similar to the baseball analogy. There's, you've got a lot of great pitchers. Some of them are real active when they go to the dugout. Others just want to be left alone. I don't know if there's a wrong and a right, and I don't know if there's a particular personality type of guys that want to be more solitary versus those that are more interactive. Former Florida Gator and one of the most accurate college kickers of the 1980s, Bobby Raymond. For me, you know, I was involved in the game. I'm watching every first down. I'm cheering for the team. You know, when we're making good plays, I'm getting up, making noise and slapping guys on the back. The receiver, running back made a great play and they came over the sideline. You know, I'd be patting them on the back and congratulating them. And I didn't want to detach myself from the team. I always wanted to feel like, hey, I'm just as much as a teammate as everybody else. Raymond wanted to be seen as more than just a kicker. He was a teammate, a leader, and a positive force on the sideline. He wasn't different or isolated because of his position. Instead, he wanted to be a football player, an athlete respected by his teammates, and that meant contributing beyond just making kicks. Even when it was time to get ready to kick, Raymond found that detachment just wasn't his style. I absolutely cared what the score was. I knew exactly what the score was. and I knew who had the momentum and who didn't. I mean, sometimes making a field goal, it's just keeping the momentum on your side. It's critical in a football game. And that's just as important as the points that are going up on the board. You want that for your team. So I was in tune with what was going on in the game, in tune with what the players were feeling and how they were acting. And that, that's what worked for me. For former Lou Groza award winner and nine-year NFL kicking veteran Nate Kading, he chose to be social for a different reason. Purposely for me, I wanted to kind of take my mind off the kicking side of it. Think of it as sort of like hypervigilance, and there's only so much gas in your mental tank, so to speak. If you're hypervigilant for an entire three or four hour, you know, warm up and plus the game, then your mind's going to get drained, it's going to get worn out. You need some energy, you need some juice. So for me, it was kind of like conserving that energy by kind of taking my mind off of it during those stretches when I knew I wouldn't have to get out there and kick right away. For Kading, John Carney's isolation model didn't work for a three plus hour game. 
There was only so much mental energy in his tank, and he had to use his downtime to recharge for the moment when he would be needed again. That's not to say that I was completely out there jacking around, because there are you know sudden changes and those sort of things throughout the course of the game. But you know, for me, in order to kind of be the most you know my most rested and engaged, I tried to turn it off a little bit so I wasn't hyper vigilant the entire game, just kind of conserve some, some mental energy as the game went on. So I, I always felt like that was sort of the best practice. And it was the best practice for Nate Kading. Even kickers who displayed similar sideline behaviors did so for different reasons. The entire point is to find a routine that works for the individual. The goal is for every kicker to feel their best when called upon to make a kick. For a kicking coach like Doug Blevins, that meant understanding your specialist. You gotta know what to say and when to say it. You, you don't wanna walk up to John Carney as a kick in there, for example, and say, don't miss his kick, or say, you don't, you're not gonna miss his, or <laughs> you don't do that. That's not just for a solitary kicker like John Carney. Art Carmody wasn't a fan either. As soon as I put my helmet on and I got to that net, that was kind of my off-limit point. Don't talk to me. Don't bother me. And that's the part that 99.9% .9 of the time, the guys that come to talk to you on the sidelines during the game are guys that are third string that aren't playing, that want to be on TV or make it seem like they are being a part of the team. The starters and the other guys, they know not to bother you. It's always the guys that know not to bother you that are the ones that come and bother you. No matter how social a kicker is, when he puts on his helmet and goes to the net, he wants to be left alone. The process needed to create a mental state ideal for kicking is solitary work. And for most kickers, the net is at the center of that process. It's just getting your leg loose. It's no different than a pitcher sitting in the dugout for 10 minutes, going out on the mound and throwing you know, five or 10 more pitches. He's just getting loose. He's getting your leg ready to go. That surprised me. Growing up watching a kicker warm up at the net on TV, I always assumed kickers use the net to test out different types of kicks depending on the distance and ball placement. I always assumed it was more than just a simple warm-up tool. There's a lot of standing around. So you may you may be on uh, the defense may be on the field for a long time, and there's a long drive, and then you know the offense gets the ball and they kind of stall. So you're not at the net, you're not really getting ready. So it's just a way to keep your leg warm and ready to go. You don't want to be cold when you step on the field. For 12-year NFL veteran Jeff Yeager and many others. The net was as much about his mental game as it was warming up. Heading over to the net to hit a couple balls into it. That's kind of the beginning of dialing in my focus. Hit a couple, just get that good feel off your toe. It's like, okay, great, I got one off my foot. That felt good. Okay, great. So I don't need to hit any more. Get them loose. I'm ready to go. Let's go. The net is a way to create comfort and calmness before a kick. If kicking is all about routine, then the net is at the center of that process. In high school or a couple times at college, you know, like there wasn't enough room on the sideline, you know, so you didn't, you didn't have a kick in that to get into that. I don't know, it was a little bothersome, you know, just because you're used to being able to, you know, stretch things out and you know, get that feel of, you know, coming off your foot, okay, that feels good. But in the NFL, Jaeger had a net on the sideline for every game he played and took advantage of it. Doug Blevins recalls differences in how his kickers used the net over the years. Some guys will, when you cross the 50-yard line, that's when they'll go down and start getting ready. Some guys will start repeating the net as soon as they're on offense. I've seen a few guys, and this, I always laugh at this, actually will be kicking into the net and warming up when they're on defense. You know, so it, it all depends on the individual what they feel like they need to do. And then there was Eddie Murray. 
I wasn't a big kick in the neck guy. I was more staying loose and flexible. I've, I've stretched, you know, do some drive one kind of kicks. Now and again, you know, I would kick in the net. I wasn't a huge guy, you know, wearing my leg out during a game to pound a ball into a net. Murray wanted to stay fresh, and minimizing work at the kicking net did that for him. Once in range, kickers don't always get their shot at field goals. Sometimes the defense forces a turnover or the offense scores a touchdown, meaning it's time to go out for an extra point. For Kading, that often served as his warm-up. It helps you through the course of the game. If the team scores a touchdown in the first drive, you get to go out there, and it's almost like you know your first putt in a big golf tournament. If that's like a little one-footer, you kind of get some of the nerves out. You get out in the field, you get the conditions, you, you bang one of those chip shot 20-yard extra points through, and you're off and running. I think that kind of helps, and it kind of spills over to you know the rest of the game as well. But Kading, who retired after the 2012 to 13 season, is of a different era. Yeah, I mean I'm, I'm a dinosaur, so I've, I've benefited from the uh, the old school 20-yarders. So that was uh, you should make all. Although it should be pretty easy to do. During his NFL career, Kading was unsuccessful on two extra points with over 350 career attempts. The short distance extra point that still exists in college and existed in the NFL before the 2015 rule change pushing it back is mundane. It's an easy kick that's supposed to go in, but that doesn't mean it isn't impressive to be perfect or near perfect on a kick you attempt hundreds of times in a career. Just listen to the record holder for the most consecutive extra points in college football history, former Texas Tech Red Raider Alex Trelika. The number of extra points I kicked, we scored a lot of touchdowns when I was there, and the fact that there was never a mess up on the like snap, hold, kick, exchange, or block, right? You get a kick block, that's a missed extra point because if you kick it, it's an attempt. And so the fact that I was able to do it however many times it was, without one of those sort of alternative things screwing up, it was probably more of a kind of a surprise than anything. 233 attempts without one miss. If you took anything away from the previous chapters on long snappers and holders, it should be that those jobs are not automatic, especially at the college level with amateurs. Having 233 extra point attempts where nothing goes wrong and the kick isn't blocked is astounding. Even for an amateur kicker, to not shank a kick once with that many attempts is impressive. I did definitely take some pride in like keeping the routine consistent. And there's some theory you could go out there and maybe get a little sloppy with your steps, or maybe just mentally not as focused as you would be on a field goal. And I could see how maybe if you got up by a couple touchdowns, you'd lose that mental focus. But definitely take a lot of pride in keeping the routine consistent. That pride, as well as being the kicker for Mike Leach's high-flying air raid offense at Texas Tech, is what allowed Trelika to reach eighth all-time in extra points made in college football history. Third all-time is a familiar name, Louisville's Art Carmody. Yeah, I learned that lesson from David Akers. He kicked for the Philadelphia Eagles for a long time. And he was living in Louisville. His wife's from Louisville, and he lived there in the offseason. And so we would kick together while he was getting prepared for his seasons. And he told me early on, don't take any kick for granted. You know, especially in the NFL when games are so tight, you might miss an extra point in the first quarter, and that may be the only chance you score and you lose 7-6. to six, And you cost your team the game because you miss an extra point. So I always just took that to heart and never took any kick for granted in college. That mindset of taking every extra point seriously led to 243 made and only two unsuccessful attempts. It's an easy kick, but again, things can go wrong. Just ask NFL veteran Matt Stover, who was unsuccessful on three extra points 
with almost 600 career attempts. Well, the reason I missed the few was because field conditions were a bad hold. It was just like, oh, God, really? You know, it's just a bad hold or, or the field conditions, I slipped, and that, that happened on those three. So what I had to learn how to do is even though field conditions were bad, even though holds may be bad, still get the ball up and get it through. And I, I learned how to do that. I had many of times where the guys didn't do a great job in front of me, but they, I covered them, and there were many times I didn't kick the ball worth a crap. But because they did their job so well, I still made the field goal. So it went both ways. If you would have taken back out of those 500-something extra points, and you would have maybe kick a 33-yard field goal, I would have missed at least nine or ten more because they were tailing off to the right. One time, I remember, hit it off the upright, they went in, and those weren't, that had nothing to do with a snap or a holder. That had everything to do with me. In fact, when the NFL considered moving the extra point back to the 15-yard line, Senior Vice President of NFL Player Engagement, Troy Vincent, called Stover to get his opinion on the matter. I said, well, Troy, let me give you the scenario. In 1996, I had to get an extra point that was 40 yards because my left wing continued to hold this guy, and the holding penalty backed it up 10 yards each time. So now I'm picking a 40-yard extra point. And it was one of my top five hardest kicks because everybody in the stadium, including myself, says, well, hell, this is just an extra point. He has to make It sounds ridiculous after hearing Stover put it in those terms, but he's right. After a touchdown, it's expected that the kicker makes the gimme extra point, even if it's not a gimme and it's 40 yards. You tell that to a kicker with 40 yards on a normal field goal, that's not the expectations of all the team. Of course, he should make it, but he may not. But not an extra point. You have to make it. So expectations are different. So I'm out there going, you've got to be kidding me. It's the third time I kicked this extra point, and now it's 40 yards. Thank God I made it. And I'm telling you, I got done with that kick. I went, oh, thank you. And that's what makes the new extra point rule so exciting and frustrating. A 33-yard extra point is not automatic. Far from it. Yet the expectation is that it should be every time. It makes the game I love far more unpredictable and fun, but also messes with our preconceived notion of what a kicker should be able to do. And I believe it's contributed to turnover for a lot of young kickers the past few years. Prior to the rule change, league-wide extra point percentages had not dipped below 98% since 1993. That's a time before every NFL team had a full-time long snapper. In the past seven years since the kick was moved back, it's under 94%. It's still a very makeable kick, but it's no longer the automatic chip shot confidence booster that Nate Kading used to love to start a game with. But now you don't have that. you got to go out and you know, knock through a, a little bit more difficult kick. So I think it's been it's had an interesting impact, I think, on, on the game. And it's people like, oh, people seem surprised that they're missing extra points. But it's like a 20-yard field goal is going to have a 98% success rate and a 33-yarder is going to have a 93, whatever that might be. So it's, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise that people are going to miss them because you're back further and, you know, it's just a more difficult kick. And that brings me back to the original point of this podcast. Making kicks from any distance at a consistent rate is hard. That's why what kickers do on the sideline is paramount to their success, and everyone is different. Most of the kickers I talked to were social with teammates in some fashion for a lot of the game. Then, when the offense crossed a certain threshold, they would put on their helmet and go over to the net to begin the mental process needed to kick a successful field goal. For a kicker like John Carney, he attempted to stay in that zone all game. But eventually, there comes a moment when it's time to go out for a field goal. No more preparing on the sideline. It's time to do your job. 
The first thing you want to know is where the ball is on third down because if it's an incomplete pass, you know exactly where to go on the field. On your way out, you know what the line of scrimmage is. That's helpful. First order of business is to get to the spot that you'll be kicking the field goal from. Uh, you're kicking at a good spot that you're happy with. That's the correct distance behind the staffer, so hopefully you'll get perfect laces. And you are also picking out a target behind the goal post. That target is where the kicker ideally wants the ball to go. We want to aim small and miss small, so preferably we're picking a target between the goalposts that we like. We want to double check to make sure the wind is doing what we think it's doing and hasn't changed the last time we're on the field, just in case we need to play the ball left or right and play the wind. We communicate with our holder that we both are in agreement with the spot. Once you're on the same page, it's time to take your steps and get into kicking position. You're very detailed and specific with your step off. That puts you in the correct starting point. I call it the consistent starting point or CSP. You need to be in that consistent starting point every time. And if that varies and you, you are inconsistent with your step off, then that means you're going to have to make adjustments on your way into the kick. And that's not always going to spell success. So you make sure your, your step off is very clear and clean and consistent. Because routine is everything in kicking. It's as essential when lining up as it is when you're on the sideline getting ready to go out and make a kick. Once you're set, the only thing left to do is call for the ball. You are 100% focused and dedicated to finishing that kick, to come in with good tempo, head down, follow through, and finish the kick, and not get curious and come out of the kick early to see where the ball's going. You want to finish that kick, and if everything goes well, the ball goes to the upright, left your over a high five, and head off to the sideline and grab your kickoff seat for your next kickoff play. And if you're John Carney, chances are, you made the kick. Coming up after the break, an exploration of the game-winning kick, including one of the most remarkable sports stories I've ever heard from Pro Football Hall of Famer Morton Anderson. It's January 31st, 1982, just another day in paradise in sunny Honolulu, Hawaii. The breeze is flowing and the crowds are cheering at Aloha Stadium where the NFL Pro Bowl is being played. Your classic all-star game, Battle of the Conferences, the AFC versus the NFC. Though in recent years, the battle has felt pretty lopsided. The NFC has been victorious four years in a row and the AFC needs to do something in order to maintain conference pride. After a score from Dallas Cowboy Tony Dorsett of the NFC, the game is tied 13-13. With just over two and a half minutes to go in the game, the AFC has a chance to drive down the field and end this losing drought. Chargers quarterback Dan Fouts does just that, highlighted by a 30-yard pass to his San Diego teammate, tight end Kellen Winslow. Fouts drives the team over 70 yards downfield to set up a 23-yard game-winning field goal. With six seconds left on the clock, the game is in the hands of second-year Kansas City Chiefs kicker Nick Lowry. The kick seemed easy enough from an outside fan's perspective, except Lowry hadn't had the most success that game. He missed both a 52-yard field goal and an extra point earlier in the contest. Not to mention, a kick of his never got off the ground after a mishap with holder Steve Largent. To make matters just a bit more stressful, Lowry got a message from one of his blockers before the kick. Pittsburgh Steelers great and future Pro Football Hall of Famer, Jack Lambert. He was the left wing on our field goal team, 
he had no teeth when he played. He had uh, he kicked them out during the game. So he looks even more fearsome. And he goes, Rookie, I love you, but we make 10000 if you make this kick and 5000 if you miss it. So make this kick or I'll rip your head off. Mike Webster's snap is good. Steve Largent's hold is good. And Lowry's kick goes right down the middle as the AFC takes a 16-13 lead with only three seconds left on the clock. The first guy to embrace Lowry after his game winner? Number 58, Jack Lambert. Lowry's kick actually only won the AFC $5,000 compared to the $2,500 the losing NFC players got. Considering the deals NFL players get now, or even current Pro Bowl payouts, this seems like small potatoes, but that's why the Pro Bowl mattered so much back then. For comparison, listen to former Charger Nate Kading talk about his game winner in the 2007 Pro Bowl 25 years later. Yeah, that was, that was super fun. Two Pro Bowls. The first one was awesome. It was out in Hawaii where I think every Pro Bowl should be. It was a blast. And, you know, it was the best kind of game winners. It was in the Pro Bowl, and it was with, like, one second left. I think it was, like, a 25-yarder or something like that. So it was, you know, an easy little chip shot, knocked it through. But, no, a lot, a lot of fun memories of being out there. Two almost identical kicks with a tied game and next to no time left on the clock in the Pro Bowl. Yet, two very different demeanors. To me, that's about as pure a distillation as you can get on how an event like the Pro Bowl can change in 25 years. It definitely helps make the Pro Bowl more fun that Kading's 21-yard game winner earned the AFC 40000 even though the losing NFC still made out with 20000 a player. These two moments also highlight the theme of this section of the podcast. This is Chapter 8. Game winners. A kicker's legacy is built on those moments. That was certainly the case for Nick Lowry, who earned the respect of Jack Lambert, as well as being able to keep his head. Games are often won or lost, depending on if the team specialist can kick a ball through two sticks. Well, at the very beginning of the game and throughout the week, you're actually envisioning you're going to have to get the game winner. And you've envisioned that it's coming. It's not if, it's when. So that when it comes, you're ready. If it doesn't come, then you're still ready. You just got to know you're going to get the ball. NFL veteran and sixth all-time in field goals made, Matt Stover. There are times when those types of kicks are harder than other times and that your emotional well-being and the state that you're in or physicality or whether or not you missed field goals before that, I'll play a part of that. It's the ability to compartmentalize and to know that you're the guy with the ball and there would be, I would rather not have anybody else on that field but me with that ball at that moment. And you embrace that. That's how you have to go out there. A game winner is the last place you should be kicking not to miss. The successful kickers, the ones who win games, want that ball. They want to be the one who wins the game, not anyone else. Not cocky. Their arrogance but it's what I call a good arrogance. They believe in themselves, and they believe every time they walk on the field, they're going to be successful. And in most cases, they are. Hall of Fame-nominated kicking coach Doug Blevins. They have that persona about them. With the cater, if he makes a mistake in the mechanics, it's over. They have about 1.34 seconds to get several things exactly right, or they miss the kick. But that's ultimately what you live for as a kicker. Well, at the very beginning of the game and throughout the week, you're actually envisioning you're going to have to kick the game winner. And you envision that it's coming. It's not if, it's when. So that when it comes, you're ready. If it doesn't come, then you're still ready. You just got to know you're going to get the ball. 
Stover really wanted it in a 2006 matchup against division rival Cleveland. It's late September and Stover and the 2-0 Ravens are down to the winless Browns. Stover's second field goal on the day is a 43-yarder early in the fourth quarter to put Baltimore down 12-14. The late Steve McNair drives the Ravens 47 yards downfield and puts Stover in position for a long game winner with 24 seconds left on the clock. In Cleveland, windy, blustery day, and I'm lining up to get the 52-yard game winner. Make it good, you know, I mean, it's over. If I miss it, it's not a tied game, we lose. And I had just told McNair, just give me as close as you can, because there wasn't a lot of time. And I would say the 52 yards was at the very back end of my distance, for sure. Keep in mind, this Stover is on the back end of 38 in his 16th year in the league. I just went out there and Sam Cook and then Mac Matula with a snap with a snapper. They just executed it perfectly and I just smoked the ball and it went through it. They were even like, holy crap, where'd that come from? It was a tough kick. The Browns can't do anything with 20 seconds left on the clock and Baltimore moves to 3-0. and The Ravens would finish the 2006 season with a 13-3 and record, putting them one win above the Colts and Patriots for the second seed and a first round bye. Game winners matter. There's other game winners where I had missed an earlier field goal where now I have to go in and win the game. And that makes it hard, right? Because it's kind of your fault until a point that you're in that situation. And that happened a few times. But as a whole, none of them are easy. They're a more difficult kick than normal because you have heightened emotions. Your anxiety is higher. It's harder to breathe. So if anybody says it's not, they're lying. I'm telling you they're lying. You know, because I've been it for 20 years. It's something that I just embraced and I wanted to be the guy with the ball. Three months after Stover's game winner, Texas Tech kicker Alex Trilica got his shot to be the guy with the ball in a historic college football game, a moment he tried to treat like any other. I don't know if it's for most, but that was sort of one of the good things about my mental state is rarely, if at all, did I get that overwhelming feeling of nerves. I was pretty good about sort of staying in the same mental mindset, just going out there and kicking. You know, it was naked, but as far as how I felt mentally, it felt very similar regardless of whether it was a kick in the first quarter or a kick in the fourth quarter. In the first quarter of the 2006 Insight Bowl, Trilika's Red Raiders are down 14 to nothing to the Minnesota Gophers. By early in the third quarter, they were down 38 to 7. Texas Tech would go on to score 28 unanswered points to bring that deficit back down to three. Getting the ball with just over a minute left, the Red Raiders drove down the field and set Trulika up for a 52-yard field goal to send the game to overtime. Trulika's career-long up to that point, 49 yards. Five seconds left on the clock and a potential 31-point comeback rests on Trulika's shoulders. He has to make the longest kick of his career to keep this historic comeback alive. No pressure. Yeah, I went out there and kicked it. I don't remember anything specifically other than someone picking me up after the fact, just trying to, again, stay with the routine, kick it smooth, and then not do anything out of the ordinary. For 52, there's no need to put any extra on it. Just go through the emotions and kick it like any other kick. Alex Trelika was one of three on kicks outside 40 yards coming into that game. Yet when the largest comeback in bowl game history rested on his leg, he just stuck to his routine. He treated the longest and most important kick of his career like any other. That is embracing your role to the fullest. 
Texas Tech went on to win that game in overtime, completing a 31-point comeback, and it wouldn't have happened without Trelika and his routine. That kick wasn't actually a game winner, but Trelika got a shot at one of those the very next year in the Gator Bowl. Well, I felt very calm. Did they even call the timeout? I don't think they called the timeout for the inside bowl, but I know that it's for the Gator Bowl. It's a familiar situation. Texas Tech is down by 14 points to Virginia with 11 and a half minutes in the fourth quarter. Once again, the Red Raiders have come storming back, this time tying the game up at 28. Momentum had shifted and the Cavaliers responded to 14 unanswered points with a three and out. That gave the Red Raiders the ball and good field position with two minutes left in the game. The perfect situation for Trulika, who is now a senior, to get one final kick. As mentioned before, Virginia called a timeout in hopes of icing Trelika before his 41-yard attempt. The problem is, icing doesn't work on kickers who are already calm. They're real comfortable with it. You're not going to ice them or make them be nervous. Blevins, the kicking coach. They ain't going to phase them. I'm a coach. The other team is getting ready to drive one. I wouldn't do it. I would not give them more time to think about it. Virginia may have not known it, but there was no shaking Trelika that drive especially not with a timeout. Set it up like right on the left upright, which was just perfect because the wind was blowing a little left to right. So it was just one of those, I hit it right where I wanted to, right when I kicked it. So it was a pretty good way to, to finish it off. His teammates then piled on top of him in celebration. I remember laying on my back and not being able to see much, but just having a great feeling of not even relief, but just joy and just a really good feeling. It was a good way to, to end this. I had kicked there for four years, so a lot of games, a lot of kicks, but that was a nice way to finish off. Trulika wasn't the only accomplished kicker that year to end his collegiate career in walk-off fashion. It was senior night at Louisville, and the way the Big East was at the time, we didn't have a ton of bowl tie-in, so we knew that even if we won the game to get to 6-6 six and six and bowl eligibility, odds were against us that we were playing in a bowl game. We kind of knew that this was our last game. Lou Groza Award winner and former Louisville kicker Art Carmody. Going into that Rutgers game, he was also within reach of the record for the most points by a kicker in college football history. We had a very successful senior class. It was kind of bittersweet knowing this was going to be the last one. And also, I knew that I was one point away from tying the record, so two points away from breaking the record. So either way, unless we got shut out, which was very rare for us at the time, we pretty much really get off of the teams. I knew that I was probably going to break the NCAA record that night. So being able to do it on the first drive, just to kind of get that out of the way, was fantastic. Carmody got his record, but the Cardinals were in trouble. This may sound familiar, but down by as much as 18 in the second half, Louisville clawed back and tied Rutgers at 38 in the fourth. The Cardinals got the ball with three and a half minutes to go and began driving down the field in hopes of giving their new record holder one last shot. That was the one time in college I knew that just get me in rage. There's no way in hell I'm missing this kick. I don't care if it's a 55-yard field one. I don't care where it is. Just get me in rage. I'm not missing this one. Carmody's 33-yard field goal gave Louisville a 41-38 victory over their Big East rivals, and the senior got to ride off into the sunset. One, that's what you live for as a kid. That's what you dream about. So to actually be in a moment you dreamed about is incredibly uh, awesome. And then two, knowing that you are helping your team. Like you're helping your, those teammates or that you're in the gym with, you're driving away for the summer, that you're helping them win a football game. That's the that's the best feeling. Everybody kind of makes fun of it, sort of being the, the wimpy guys that aren't tackling or hitting everybody. But, I mean, you got to be the, the mental toughness required of a kicker, you know, to handle all the different situations they're going to get put in. And that's the toughness to that. Nate Kading was a sophomore kicker 
for the Iowa Hawkeyes in 2001. At the end of that season, he got his chance to show off that mental toughness in the Alamo Bowl against Texas Tech, led by head coach Mike Leach and quarterback Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah, we were you know, going back and forth, kicked several field goals earlier in the game. You know, we were driving down the field, and the game was tied, and it was uh, 40, I think 47 yards or something like that, and you know, just went out there. I had did a couple at Penn State, kind of a shorter one. I had a bunch of pressure kicks, but it wasn't like, it was really that first one in college. It was like, yeah, you know, this is it. The score is tied 16-16 to with less than a minute left on the clock. The Iowa football program finishing with a winning record depends on Kading making this kick. You make it and you're the hero, you mess it and you're the goat, like it's end of, end of the game kind of scenario and just knock it through and especially with being a little bit longer one down there to go. A career defining kind of kick. Looking back on it really kind of gave me, you know, this big confidence boost after being just a young 18, 19 year old trying to figure it out my freshman and sophomore year. And again, it kind of poured gasoline on everything and just kind of really ignited my progression and success. It kind of gave me that extra boost of confidence going into that offseason and, you know, really rock and roll going forward. The following season, Kading won the Lou Groza Award and would go on to be the highest specialist taken in the 2004 draft. The third rounder was taken by the Chargers and would go on to make his first of two Pro Bowls after the 2006 season where he would kick the game winner for the AFC, as mentioned at the top of this chapter. Another former Charger, John Carney, has his own favorite game winner from his time in San Diego, though it's not for the reason you might expect. In the year 2000, the Chargers won one game, and it was about week 13. We were playing the Kansas City Chiefs at home, and we ended up kicking a 52-yard field goal at the end of the game to win our only game of the season and to prevent us from going 0-16 and be the first team to go winless. No one wants that on the resume. Sometimes a great game winner just means no embarrassment. That was pretty exciting that we uh, finally secured a victory in week 13. And sometimes, one can mean postseason glory, like for Nick Lowry. The Kansas City kicker had moved on from game winners in the Pro Bowl to a shot at one in the playoffs. It's the wild card round of the 1993 season, and Lowry's Chiefs are in overtime against the Steelers. Lowry had a chance to win it in regulation, but missed a 43-yarder with 12 seconds remaining in the fourth quarter. Lowry got a shot at redemption thanks to Kansas City quarterback Joe Montana, who set him up with a 32-yard potential game-winning kick. I think to myself as I'm lining up that kick, and Brian Barker, my holder, saying, you know, keep your head down, keep your head down, because when you keep your head down, whether it's golf or kicking, you have a better follow-through, and your ball tends to stay true longer. He takes his holder's advice. And I look up, it goes right through, and the whole stadium just stands up, and it's a really cold game. The whole team runs on the field, we won, and it just, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. I don't think it gets even that good in the movies. Those Chiefs would go on to lose to the Buffalo Bills in the AFC Championship, and Lowry would be released from the team the following offseason. I didn't know that was going to be my last game for the Chiefs, and not my final game with the Chiefs, but the last field on the arrowhead. And my high school coach, Gary Gardner, was there. Just by chance, he was there and got to watch that. The guy that had appreciated my potential back way back as a junior at St. Albans made me not stop playing wide receiver and just be punter and kicker. And, and Gardner got to watch a do-or-die, career-defining kick with Lowry's family and over 70,000 fans. Next up is one more memory from John Carney, who in 2009 was a 45-year-old kicker on the Saints. Carney started the first 12 weeks of the season before second-year kicker Garrett Hartley took over the starting job. 
Carney was then waived as a player and re-signed as a consultant for the Young Saints kicker. The decision paid off in that year's NFC Championship when the Brett Favre-led Vikings took the Saints to overtime. It was tied in the last couple of minutes of the game. My good buddy Garrett Hartley was standing on the sideline watching the Brett Favre show. I remember walking up to Garrett and saying, hey, um, why don't we go over to the kicking net and hit some balls? Because it's probably going to come down to you or Ryan Longwell, and uh, we should start preparing for that. <laughs> Garrett had to go get his helmet. He didn't have his helmet with him. Carney started his senior year at Notre Dame a few months after Hartley was born, and now he's holding for him on the sideline before the biggest kick of his life. The 22-year NFL veteran helped Hartley get into the headspace he needed. And we went over to the net, started hitting some balls, getting into a nice tempo, nice rhythm. Soon we were in overtime and he was running out on the field to uh, put the Saints into the Super Bowl. Hartley's 40-yarder splits the uprights and sent the Saints to their first Super Bowl. Big game-winning kicks in bowl and playoff games are about as high stakes as you can get in the kicking world. With one swing of his leg, Garrett Hartley sent the Saints to their first ever Super Bowl game. Nick Lowry's game winner would be the Chiefs' last home playoff victory for the next 25 years. When the stakes are high, so is the pressure. I don't use the word pressure ever. Pro Football Hall of Famer Morton Anderson. When your skill set doesn't match the task, you feel pressure. End of story, drop the mic, whatever you want to say. If it's in your wheelhouse and you've been there before and you own it, you should be free to trust and to do what you're supposed to do if you've trained it mentally, if you've done it enough. That mentality and way of training helped Anderson more than he could ever imagine in the biggest kick of his career. It's the 1998 NFC Championship game, and Anderson's Falcons are tied 27-27 to in overtime. That Vikings offense was lethal, setting a then-NFL record for 556 points in one season. The reason the Falcons forced overtime was because Vikings kicker Gary Anderson missed his first field goal that entire year. 39 consecutive kicks, and the 40th was a miss that would have put Minnesota up by 10 points rather than 7. Instead, the Falcons scored and got a shot at overtime. After three combined punts, the Falcons finally got a drive going, starting deep in their own territory. The closer they got to the end zone, the more likely it seemed the future Hall of Famer would get a chance to send his team to their first ever Super Bowl. Well, it started the night before when I did my mental rehearsals in the hotel room. I had written in my log, I would do about four specific scenarios for the upcoming game. I would just script them, I would memorize them, and then I would rehearse them in real time in slow motion, taking about 30 minutes. The Falcons drove the ball down to about the Vikings' 21-yard line, setting up a 38-yard field goal off the left hash. Almost exactly the same spot where Gary Anderson missed his only field goal that year. The last kick I had written was 38 left pass overtime to go to the Super Bowl. That's exactly what happened. This time out in Minnesota, that happened too. So it was kind of wild when I was standing there in overtime and we were driving. We were getting in position to win the game. I just remember going, we're going to the Super Bowl. It's over. You heard that right. The final kick Anderson visualized in his hotel room the night before maybe the biggest game of his life turned into the exact kick that would send his team 
to the Super Bowl. Now, I didn't bother to tell anybody, and I could tell they had no clue. They weren't driving the car because they were on their knees, holding hands, praying to God. And I'm thinking, maybe they don't think I'm going to make it, or maybe they're hoping they were feeling the moment. But for some reason, I wasn't, and I'm not saying I'm Superman or anything, but I had rehearsed this. So to me, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. When I took the field, I had already rehearsed this. This had already played out the night before. Anderson doesn't use the word pressure because to him, pressure is for those who are unprepared. He felt no pressure during the biggest kick of his life because he was so prepared, he somehow simulated it before it even happened. So now, the real deal was a foregone conclusion. The whole thing felt like slow motion. The ball looked big. As soon as I hit it, I knew it was good. And those goalposts could have been two feet wide. And I started running and it was just this wild validation of how powerful mental training can be. That is what greatness looks like at the kicking position, mixed with just a little bit of luck. Cannot explain it, brother. It was uh, divine intervention, call it what you will. It, it was just, it was crazy. Like this revelation, you know, almost like, uh, wow. A higher power put me here today to do this, and now I'm going to do it. What I had scripted, what I had thought would happen, happened. Coming up next time on Locked On Presents, Through the Uprights. It's one thing to make it in the NFL as a kicker, but how does that turn into a long-lasting career? We all have an idea of something we want to be in life. That comes up against the real-life rejection, and how we deal with that is really fundamental, because if we see ourselves as being afraid that our dream will end, and then when we're cut the first time, as I was, that that means I'm not good enough, well, good luck. I would do much more mental training as I got, you know, got older in the game than, than kicking. I would, I would rep kicks in my mind and then, you know, transfer to the field. But my, my pre-games got shorter. My practice kicking sessions got shorter. Well, when I was young, I would kick 300 a day. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. Like human jugs machine didn't make any sense, really looking back on it. But every time there was a job and I got a call, I got the job. And it was because I was ready and prepared. Through the Uprights is reported, edited, and sound designed by Cole Weinstein for the Locked On Podcast Network. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Locked On Presents Through the Uprights. To listen to the entire six-episode podcast series, search for Locked On Presents Through the Uprights. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts.